Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Over the course of 13 feature films, he examined a diverse range of topics and themes, from the glories and dangers of technology... I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. ...to the moral conflicts inherent in war. Whose side do you want, son? Our side, sir. How about getting with the program? He investigated the duality of man with unblinking honesty... (laughs) ...with a fierce intelligence... He embraced the ambiguous, revealing deeper layers of truth with every viewing of his work. You've always been the caretaker. His films were of their time, ahead of their time, and timeless. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops. In this series, we will examine the works of Stanley Kubrick, works that will continue to challenge, fascinate, and exhilarate audiences for as long as there are movies. This is the Kubrick series. Episode 6, Born to Kill. Well, I mean, you know, the question is, that, you know, I, I feel about the, the films is, is it, is it truthful? Is it interesting? This is the voice of Stanley Kubrick. You know, to worry about uh, the sort of mandatory scenes or touches which people often think make a picture more, I keep thinking of the word ingratiating for the audience, seems to me, uh, you know, not something that you really have to do. I think the audience has more, uh, is more intelligent and reacts more to the truth than some of the people that try to outguess them think they well. In 1987, Rolling Stone journalist Tim Cahill was sent to England to interview Kubrick for a feature article on his latest film, Full Metal Jacket. These tapes, which Mr. Cahill recorded not for broadcast, but merely as a guide for crafting his profile for the magazine, had never been heard by the public before Mr. Cahill provided them to us for the enjoyment and enlightenment of Kubrick series listeners. I had assumed, having read many interviews with him, doing my research, they sound like the philosophical um, maunderings of uh, chess masters, a couple of chess masters talking or something. So I didn't know if I could be that kind of interviewer. So, yeah, I had some apprehension that uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, required an intellectual type approach, which is all I'd ever seen written about him. We sat down and started talking, and he disarmed me immediately uh, with, uh, no, you don't have to be uh, intellectual, and you don't have to ask me uh, what this means and what that means. And uh, I believe he said, I've always felt cornered and challenged by those kind of questions. Now, I've always been trapped and pinned down and sort of, sort of harried by them and forced sometimes to make up or write or 
let other people write these answers, but I think the most difficult thing to deal with, you know, when you're so inside something, especially as soon as it's finished, is to uh, be asked to do this sort of, uh, you know, five-line capsule summary that you'd read in uh, a magazine, but uh, this is a story about the blah, 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 blah. I still can't tell somebody what Paths of Glory is about. Throughout the course of this episode, you'll hear some of Kubrick's insights from these recordings about the visual splendor of war, his direction of actors, and choice of locations. But we begin where it all began for him, a semi-autobiographical book titled The Short Timers by Vietnam veteran Gustav Hasford. Gustav went through his whole life saying, I am not Joker. I am not Joker. Writer and Hasford aficionado, Jason Sanford. But there is a very strong autobiographical element in the novel. In some ways, he is Joker. Um, you know, he served in Vietnam. He was a, uh, in the Marine Corps, he served as a correspondent for Stars and Stripes, uh, very much like uh, the, the, type, the character I'm just referring to. You know, he went over there. He actually um, was assigned to stateside duty on a newspaper. Uh, didn't like it. He wanted to go and basically, in some ways, test his manhood by going to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was sent over uh, just in time. Uh, he spent time there during the Tet Offensive. You know, it it does feel very much like, you know, he was taking a lot of what he saw and working it into fiction. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. Without me, my rifle is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. I must fire my rifle true. I must shoot straighter than my enemy who is trying to kill me. I must shoot him before he shoots me. I will. Before God, I swear this creed. My rifle and myself are defenders of my country. We are the masters of our enemy. We are the saviors of my life. So be it, until there is no enemy. But peace, amen. The film is is very faithful to the first part of the uh, novel which deals with the boot camp. Um, the second part and third part of the novel were condensed and changed somewhat for the, to become the second part of the film. Fortunately, this, is, this was a very short, very beautifully economically written book, which, um, like the film, left out all the mandatory scenes of, of quote, character, unquote, you know, where the guy tells about his father who's an alcoholic and his mother who, you know, and his girl and this and that and all the stuff that you know bogs down and feels so arbitrarily inserted into almost every war story the book is incredibly sparsely written you know a hell of a lot is from the book some of it was to put it in the screenplay stage kubrick has a history of not involving the authors in the adaptations did, but he tried to involve gustav in this one didn't he absolutely he did um and uh, it, it literally drove both of them crazy. <laughs> they, uh, I believe it was about five years before the movie came out. Gustav gets a call from Stanley Kubrick. They evidently had long conversations. I mean, hours and hours of talking on the phone. 
There was definitely a love-hate relationship. There are times when Gustav hated uh, Kubrick. Definitely uh, not work, the relationship did not work out. I do know one thing that was a breaking point for uh, the two was uh, Kubrick wanted to give him a screenwriting credit of, quote, additional dialogue, mm. which uh, Gustav, his famous quote is, those fuckers retyped my novel and they tried to put their names on it. And eventually, you know, he tried, he sued Kubrick and Kubrick gave him, you know, screenwriting credit and all full credit and all that kind of stuff with the others. So, but, but it was that whole uh, situation that really uh, soured it, I think, for Kubrick. You know, the fact that Gustav just kept coming back to them over and over and wouldn't stop. Here was a ex-Marine, a Vietnam War uh, hero who basically was like, and, and, and Gustav was not a small man either. <laughs> you know, we're not talking. He was a big man. Here's a man who's basically like, you know what? I'm going to keep coming at you until you give me what I want. And uh, so I think that got under Kubrick's uh, skin, and it definitely got under Gustav's. In the midst of his falling out with Hasford, Kubrick enlisted the writing assistance of Michael Hare, whose acclaimed memoir, Dispatches, memorably portrayed his time as a correspondent for Esquire magazine during the Vietnam War. This wasn't Hare's first foray into the world of cinema. Francis Ford Coppola had tapped him years before to pen Martin Sheen's narration for Apocalypse Now. Saigon. Shit. I'm still only in Saigon. Together, Kubrick and Hare worked to flesh out the spare prose of Hasford's The Short-Timers. Their goal? To strip the war film of its traditionally moralizing tendencies, and focus instead on capturing the sense of war as a phenomenon. Well, you know, he understood war as, you know, something that was totally undesirable and generally you know, he felt it was, it meant there'd been a failure somewhere along the line between, you know, the understanding and, and, and diplomatic interaction which is needed you know, to avoid these things. But he also understood that from the dawn of man, you know, it's almost as if it's a gene inside the human race. Kubrick's longtime assistant, Leon Vitali. Astonishing, isn't it, that when one talks about the 20th century, you know, people talk about the First World War, which lasted from 1914 to 1918. And then, you know, 21 years later, you know, there was another World War. Mm. And then after that, after 1945, there was Korean War. And after the Korean War, there was the Vietnam War. And you, you realize that in between the World Wars, somewhere on the planet, and particularly, say, in Russia after 1918, there was a war going on there. You know, there was wars in the Balkans. In fact, there were wars happening all the time. And you think of Britain, for instance, they, from 1850, they were involved in five wars before they even got to the First World War. So you understand that it's a pattern in the human in human nature at the moment, or that's one of the ways we could maybe understand it and learn how to deal and cope with it. Mm -hmm. and so he understood that it was, there was an inevitability about 
about war. And But inside that, of course, you have a multitude of stories um, that make up the total picture of a war. And it can be it can be a national phenomenon, as in Dr. Strangelove, where, you know, the war is actually a cold war, mm-hmm. where not a shot is fired, but the threat is huge and always there. Uh, Paths of Glory, where, you know, human life meant very little to any of the sides fighting. You pitched people in and just said, you know, you're fighting for your country, get on with it. And uh, right up to Full Metal Jacket, where, you know, there was a feeling that, you know, it was a war that was basically unnecessary and probably shouldn't have been fought and was fought, you know, with little understanding of the kind of war that should be fought. You know, the people who got it right, of course, were the North Vietnamese who understood they'd been fighting in the field for 20 years before the Americans came along. And, you know, it wasn't thought out and it wasn't wasn't understood. Um, So, you know, inside the phenomenon of of war and man's, you know, (laughs) preoccupation with it, there are all these angles and, and ideas and stories and philosophies and God knows what. So, you know, he didn't, you know, he was anti-war. He was anti-war, but he understood yeah. that it happens. And so, you know, get inside it and examine the phenomenon from the human perspective. When when I sit and watch uh, Full Metal Jacket, I recall the anger and I recall the despair that uh, I and, uh, you know, many of my buddies felt uh, just by being there. Harry Haynes is a Vietnam veteran who has devoted his life to teaching the portrayal of the Vietnam War in popular media. Well, you know, for a long time, Hollywood pretty much ignored uh, mm-hmm. Vietnam and, and actually ran away, ran away from it. Uh, it uh, I, I think it was a good 10 years after the actual hostilities that the, the films uh, started to come. Help! God damn it! It's going to be all right, Nicky. Go ahead, shoot! There there had been Green Berets, Hearts and Minds, Apocalypse Now, Coming Home, The Deer Hunter, those kind of Vietnam-themed films. Prior to Full Metal Jacket, what what, uh, characteristics make Full Metal Jacket stand apart for you from those titles? Well, you know, I can remember being a young Vietnam War vet uh, going to see that film, and I, I was quite startled by it uh, because up until that time, uh, you know, some of the movies had really turned me off, keeping in mind, of course, I had something of an attitude problem coming back as uh, all veterans of all wars have, uh, particularly in regard to Green Berets. I'm glad you mentioned that. Ham chunk. You always knew it could happen, didn't you? But I didn't want it to. None of us did. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't know of one Vietnam War veteran who has any respect for that film at all. Uh, by, by the time we all got to Vietnam, uh, John Wayne, I think, was regarded as uh, something of a buffoon. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was very glad to see that uh, suggested in the wonderful character, character Joker. You know, I mean... <laughs> Uh, Joker doing uh, John Wayne is one of the great things about that film. Well, they call me the Joker. (laughs) Well, I got a joke for you. 
I'm gonna tear you a new asshole. Oh. <laughs> well, Pilgrim, only after you eat the peanuts out of my shit. <laughs> the thing that, that I believe that, that uh, Kubrick uh, captured was the, the bizarre, twisted, pseudo-reality of the Vietnam War experience. I think he captured that. He got that. Uh, where uh, very smart people are dropped into a war zone and they know that it's insane. They know that it's psychotic, in fact. And uh, what, what we get in that film are a number of reactions by, by very good, decent guys to the psychosis of the Vietnam War period. And it starts in basic training. Full Metal Jacket is typically referenced as a film in two parts. The first 45 minutes takes place in a Paris Island boot camp. Fairly early, we are introduced to the central characters who will dominate this first section of the film. R. Lee Ermey plays Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, a relentless drill instructor who motivates through a constant barrage of aggressive posturing and filthy insults. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to, and the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be served. Do you maggots understand that? Private J.T. Davis is quickly nicknamed Private Joker by the drill instructor. He's played by Matthew Modine. You had best unfuck yourself or I will unscrew your head and check down your neck! Sir, yes sir! Private Joker, why did you join my beloved corps? Sir, to kill, sir! So you're a killer? Sir, yes sir! Let me see your war face! Sir! You got a war face? Ah! That's a war face! Now let me see your war face! Ah! Bullshit! You didn't convince me! Let me see your real war face! Ah! You don't scare me! Work on it! Sir, yes, sir! Then there's Leonard Lawrence, an overweight recruit who absorbs the brunt of Sergeant Hartman's fury. What's your name, fat body? Sir, Leonard Lawrence, sir! Lawrence, Lawrence, what, of Arabia? Sir, no, sir! That name sounds like royalty. Are you royalty? Sir, no, sir! Do you suck dicks? Sir, no, sir! Bullshit! I'll bet you could suck a golf ball through a garden hose. Sir, no, sir! I don't like the name Lawrence. Only faggots and sailors are called Lawrence. From now on, you're Gomer Pyle. Sir, yes, sir. Do you think I'm cute, Private Pyle? Do you think I'm funny? Sir, no, sir. Then wipe that disgusting grin off your face. Sir, yes, sir. Embodied by actor Vincent D'Onofrio, Leonard's floundering demeanor represents just about the farthest thing from a human killing machine as you could imagine. But that will change over time. Actor Vincent D'Onofrio. When he started a dialogue with you about the role and about the film, uh, how, how descriptive was he about what he wanted out of that character? He, he was, well, he, he didn't talk a lot about it, but he did say that he was weak-minded and uh, it was that and the pressure of the Marine Corps and the training process that made him, uh, you know, turn into uh, having this psychotic rage. But he wanted him to, to appear to be a country bumpkin that eventually turns into a uh, 
this kind of um, explosive killer. Joker. Everybody hates me now. Even you. Nobody hates you, Leonard. You just keep making mistakes. Getting everybody in trouble. I can't do anything right. I need help. trying to help you, Leonard. I'm really trying. Hi, Joker. The uh, D'Onofrio character, that wonderful character. I mean, what an absolutely brilliant character that is. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, he is culturally produced in basic training as a psychotic. And the problem is he blows away the wrong people, you know? Uh, if they had dropped him into a combat zone, he could have been, he could have become a you know a recipient of a Congressional Medal of Honor. Now you listen to me, Private Pile, and you listen good. I want that weapon, and I want it now. You will place that rifle on the deck at your feet and step back away from it. <laughs> underlying theme of that film is how how do you maintain uh, your sanity in an environment that is thoroughly psychotic and in an environment where death uh, really has very little meaning other than the fact that well you're dead mm-hmm. uh, and uh, for me Kubrick captures that perfectly in in that film Critic Keith Ulick. I mean, it's so it's so interesting because you know when he shoots Early Army, he goes down in slow mo, but when he shoots himself, it's quick. Where it's like there's a split second and then bam. You know, if you if you want to talk about it like it's an orgasmic shot or something, I mean, it's like it's it's like the orgasm lasts a millisecond, and then it and then it's just like everything goes limp, and like immediately goes into you know the the fade in on Vietnam with the with the hooker coming up and doing the miso honey miso honey you know it's like yeah, I, I don't know if you can necessarily even process what's going on these boots are made for walking and that's just what they'll do one of these days these boots are gonna walk hey, over baby. you you got girlfriend Vietnam not just this minute well, baby, me so horny, me so horny, you keep lying. me love you, you long time. The transition is indeed a shocking one, between Private Pyle's murder-suicide and the strut 
of Nancy Sinatra's appropriate, You've Been Messin' Where You Shouldn't Have Been Messin'. We are plunged into the world of Vietnam. Yet it's not quite the environment we've experienced in previous cinematic iterations of the war. Perhaps as a result of Kubrick's choice of England as his filming location. Vietnam veteran Harry Haynes. From my perspective, and of course my, my perspective is super saturated with the experience of the war itself in my own little corner. And I, you know, I'm not saying that that trumps everybody else's point of view, but it certainly is my point of view. And, and the very fact that uh, the, the film does have that quality, for me, that's Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You know, that's Vietnam. In in a sense, uh, uh, Vietnam itself wasn't quite Vietnam, at, at least the way uh, we Americans experienced it. It always seemed weird, the whole thing. In fact, uh, I can remember several times uh, just sitting around with GIs. Uh, one one guy would say to the other, "You know, this is really like a movie," and and uh, that was a very common. Uh, observation. So, so the the fact that uh, Kubrick uh, shot that film uh, from from that point of view, uh, I, I I think in a in a very odd way he captured it. You know, he mm-hmm. got it. If if he had been able to take his crew off to Southeast Asia and actually shoot it in Vietnam, it would have been a completely different movie. Author of Stanley Kubrick: Seven Films Analyzed, Randy Rasmussen. I guess I guess it is uh, Kubrick's inherent detachment. I, I, I hesitate to say indifference to because he's not. I mean, he's mm-hmm. portraying you know emotional and moral, and but he's always got one foot out of it because he doesn't want you totally committed. I don't think. I mean, he he wants you in it but out of it at the same time, whereas most, um, a lot of films will uh, about war will have you usually sympathizing far more uh, unreservedly with a particular character or with one side or the other or just anti-war all the way. The concept of one foot in and one foot out is epitomized by Matthew Modine's character Joker. Following boot camp, Joker is assigned to serve as a military journalist for Stars and Stripes magazine. He is a writer at heart, albeit one who's been trained to be a killer. That dichotomy, the duality of man, is present throughout the remainder of his journey in the film. On one hand, he's a conscientious observer, and on the other, an active participant. Green, what is that button on your body armor? A peace symbol, sir. Where'd you get it? I don't remember, sir. What is that you've got written on your helmet? Born to kill, sir. You write born to kill on your helmet and you wear a peace button. What's that supposed to be, some kind of sick joke? No, sir. What is it supposed to mean? I don't know, sir. You don't know very much, do you? No, sir. You better get your head and your ass wired together or I will take a giant shit on you. Yes, sir. Now answer my question or you'll be standing tall before the man. I think I was trying to suggest something about the duality of man, sir. The what? The duality of man, the Jungian thing, sir. Early in his tour, Joker converses with a bloodthirsty gunner as he fires deliriously and indiscriminately from a chopper. 
the outside-looking-in journalist and joker begins to question him. Anyone who runs is a VC. Anyone who stands still is a well-disciplined VC. <laughs> you guys ought to do a story about me sometime. Why should we do a story about you? Because I'm so fucking good. That ain't no shit, neither. I've done got me 157 dead goose kills. And 50 water buffaloes, too. Them are all certified. Any women or children? Sometimes. How can you shoot women and children? By the end of the film, Joker will discover the answer for himself. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. As the film progresses, Joker is embedded with a combat squad in the lead-up to the Battle of Way. Mercifully, while introducing the audience to the members of the combat unit, Kubrick disposes of the typical getting-to-know-you backstory theatrics. And yet, even without the crutch of those hackneyed storytelling tropes, the soldiers exude a convincing specificity. Vietnam veteran Harry Haynes. I will tell you my my favorite character in that film, and I would have to say at this stage of the game, my favorite character in all of the Vietnam War films uh, so far is uh, Animal Mother. What do I think about America's involvement in the war? Well, I think we should win. I, I think Animal Mother is, is one of the finest uh, contributions to the genre that uh, any of the filmmakers uh, have, have made in reference to Vietnam. And for me, it comes down to one quote, better you than me. Uh, Animal Mother is a fine soldier. He is an excellent soldier. Um, but uh, he understands that war is not a romantic adventure. It has nothing to do with the achievement of masculinity. It has everything to do with whether or not you're still breathing uh, at the end of the day. And mm -hmm. uh, for me, that is, that is a powerful anti-war statement. Uh, I, I think you know, you know the scene that I'm talking about, right, where the, yes. uh, the camera focuses on uh, individual soldiers and, and uh, each individual gets to say something in reference to the war debt. That's what he says. Semper Fi. We're mean Marines, sir. Go easy, bros. Better you than me. Well, at least they died for a good cause. What cause was that? Freedom? Flush out your hit, you new guy. Think we waste gooks for freedom? This is a slaughter. If I'm gonna get my balls blown off for a word, my word is poontang. I, I, I think that it would be absolutely impossible 
for a filmmaker to come along ever again and romanticize war um, in the traditional World War II way, uh, having seen uh, that scene and having heard that statement by uh, this, this wonderful character. Animal Mother takes charge in the climax. The setting is a tense standoff during a battle at Hue, where members of the squad are patiently and agonizingly targeted by a single female sniper perched high above in one of many bombed-out buildings. Uh, well, first of all, the Tet Offensive is most atypical of Vietnam because it was just one time where they came out and fought a la World War II. And Way was was the biggest example of it because they did uh, they had a division in in Way and they, it was a real World War Two kind of battle. One of the things that makes uh, Full Metal Jacket unique is that it focuses on the Tet Offensive and particularly the fighting at Way. And the fighting at Way was truly unique in that war. Uh, most of the war had to do with uh, uh, you know small groups. Uh, out in the out in the uh, bush, humping and uh, encountering other small groups. Way was completely different. Way was the closest thing that our troops uh, experienced in Vietnam to the kind of fighting that characterized World War II, where you go house to house and it's uh, up close and personal. And uh, so that's another quality that makes it, makes this film unique. And uh, what that does, of course, is open up all kinds of uh, possibilities for uh, characters to get wasted, for them to uh, uh, blow away uh, other people uh, up close and personal. The, the killing of the sniper, for, for example, who turns out to be female, is uh, pretty much unprecedented in any of the films made about Vietnam. Okay. Let's get the fuck out of here. What about her? Fuck her. Let her rot. We can't just leave her here. Go on. Thank you.
This moment stands in parallel to Private Pyle's suicide at the conclusion of the film's first half. Under the same crescendo of film score, a single bullet elicits sudden and eternal lifelessness. <laughs> Joker, we're gonna have to put you up for the Congressional Medal of Ugly! <laughs> Hardcore. Once Joker discharges the final bullet that puts the female sniper out of her misery, he joins the rest of his squad as they walk out into the night towards their next destination. As they leave behind a scene of infinite fire and rubble, they break out into an unlikely song. For me, uh, that that scene functions as a message to the civilian population, uh, the people who who. Uh, by the grace of God, did not make it to Vietnam, as if to say, you're responsible for this. And uh, you see how we take uh, the songs that we learned as children and we bring them into this horrific environment. So for me, that's like the exclamation point uh, for, for that film. Mm. Uh, I, I think people feel very uneasy. I certainly feel uneasy when I see that scene. Years, years later, you know, here I am in my 60s, I still feel creepy uh, when I uh, see that scene and hear uh, that particular song sung by guys who are out there with weapons and they're looking for people to kill. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's good to feel creepy. In, in that instance, I truly do, and I think it's especially good for the civilian population to to feel uneasy uh, about that because we send guys like that to do our dirty work generation unto generation. Film and philosophy professor Daniel Shaw. Well, I mean, it just seemed to underline to me the uh, the pointlessness of the Vietnam War. I mean, it's a, a, a perfect metaphor for how powerless our technological superiority was in the face of uh, commitment when a scrawny young girl can hold off a whole squad of Marines and mm -hmm. kill three of them, and, or more than that, maybe. Um, you know, it's the perfect, the perfect metaphor for the hopelessness of that struggle. Mm. Uh, first time I saw it, that, that it, it goes right from that to Mickey Mouse, was really jarring. I just I was I was left with a bad taste in my mouth. But in the long run, I've come to think of it as genius because it's the Disney mentality that got us into that <clears throat> situation. It's the the American democratic ideology taught us in part by Disney that there is one universal ideal political system for all places and all times. And it is. America's destiny to stuff it down the world's throats. I mean, also, of course, we've got the Marines singing the Mickey Mouse song, which was, you know, there to suggest 
the uh, lost innocence of these boys, you know, who not so many years ago were probably actually singing the Mickey Mouse song uh, with the television set with Annette Funicello. The film's climactic set piece, which is one of the greatest in the history of war films, is aided in no small part by its unique filming location, an abandoned gasworks factory on the north bank of the Thames. Well, there was this, I mean, I should think there'd be no place in the world that you'd ever find like it. We found this area, uh, which has this uh, 1930s functionalism, industrial functionalism architecture, which you see... I mean, we have stills in, in, in the, you know, obviously not every bit of way look like that, but the, the, the sort of outer industrial parts, I mean, are absolute carbon copies of those buildings. So that was a, a, a break. But the thing is that the place was, in, was scheduled to be demolished completely. Uh, it had been uh, owned by British Gas and... Uh, they allowed us to blow up buildings. We, you know, we had uh, demolition guys there uh, working, like uh, you know, for a week laying charges, and had this spectacular, you know, people, the executives from British Gas came on a Sunday with their families to watch all these buildings being blown up. And we also uh, we had a you know wrecking ball and crane there for about two months with the art director, uh, you know, telling him which hall to knock into which buildings and so on. <laughs> sort of the delicate touch of the wrecking ball. Well, it's something which I don't think anybody's ever had because you cannot, you can, but it's almost beyond uh, any kind of economic possibility, really make uh, ruins because the three-dimensional rubble, I mean, every single thing would have to be done by plasterers and models and uh, you, I, I think you could not, you could not build that if you spent $80 million and five years doing it. I mean, you just couldn't do it with it. All those twisted bits of reinforced steel. You'd have to you'd have to copy something real anyway because it's a little bit like a rubble is like a, you know if you're going to make if you're going to make a tree you've got, I've got to copy a real tree because every tree has some inherent logic in the way the branches you know and no one can really make up a tree and the other thing you find is nobody can make up a rock I found that in Paz of Glory you had to copy rocks because rocks also have an inherent logic which you're not aware of until you see someone make a fake rock and you realize that even though each detail looks right, there's something about the rock that you know isn't a real rock. So I don't think that could have been done. Uh, I don't think it could have ever been built. Uh, it would have been beyond, I think, anybody's resources. And then we also, uh, you know, brought in the palm trees and the, uh, we brought it, we bought uh, uh, 100,000 plastic tropical plants from Hong Kong and stuff to put around and so forth. And, you know, it was a tremendous set dressing and rubble job. And, uh, and then we added details of uh, bits of, you probably don't even realize it, but uh, bits of things that we also added to the building which, which looked like which we'd seen in Vietnam. So I, I think it's an amazing uh, break. I mean, I don't, I don't, I honestly don't think that could have been done anyplace. I mean, if they'd let you go to Vietnam and go to Hawaii, you couldn't have done it because they wouldn't have let you uh, wreck the place. You know? And Hawaii was really blasted to shit. 
although it was uh, um, uh, set in Southeast Asia, it was actually shot in Southeast London. Douglas Milsom worked as a member of John Alcott's camera team, starting with The Clockwork Orange. Following the unfortunate passing of Alcott in 1986, Kubrick promoted Milsom to the position of cinematographer for Full Metal Jacket. What it was, you bring in things, elements, and uh, the elements were largely existing uh, city structures of way, Tet and all the rest of it, which were bombed out and blitzed urban warfare, which is what it was. But what it was, as you know, it was a, a, a gas factory or gas um, um, power station, if you like, which was going to be demolished. Mm. So a lot of stuff was actually a ignite and pulled down by um, uh, military to, re- to reduce it to rubble for us. So they did it and we shot it. So we had already a, a, a bombed-out city completely built for us, and all we did was put a, several hundred palm trees here and there and skips and place them to taste in all, most of the compositions and, you know, set light to them, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that was another aspect. We tested that, and uh, and then we thought, well, let's keep it, like, dull. You can't... The heat isn't affecting gas works. It is in Vietnam. You've got to make this place feel like they're dying. It's heat unimaginable, you know, um, humidity and one thing or another. But that was the only difficult thing to do, to keep the cold breath, because they were frozen some of the time, in, you know, jackets and things like that, bare shoulders, and it was cold. It was just winter. The whole thing went through summer to winter. So, um, again, testing stuff, which was shooting again, you know, either first thing, first light or last light. Or if we had to shoot during the day, we had, the weather had to be pretty great and overcast. So you could, you know, the sultriness of it, and obviously. Yeah. So to shoot wide open meant, um, you know, stacking a lot of NDs on the lenses um, to reduce the exposure through the lens. So it flattened it out a lot. So if you had a daylight exposure, right at 16.22, we still shoot at f one four. So we put NDs all up front and take the, take the correction filter off so it went kind of cold and kept everything wide open. So even on the wide-angle lenses, it still looked shallow, and you were shooting full aperture, so you got the maximum effect from all the, the, the fire, the gun bullets, shells, fire, crackers, anything that was going off looked completely real. You know, you saw, you weren't pulling that in, you weren't underexposing it, you were overexposing everything, even though you had a, a bright, full-lit day. So again, that was more testing. So all this stuff, this is what you, you talk about before it goes. So when you're into it, you get on with it. You get the lenses. He wanted to shoot with Nikons. So he bought every Nikon stills lens. We had those adapted to fit a, a freeze NC camera or remounted Nikon um, mounts on the camera. Uh, that I think the, the lens arsenal then was something over 100 different, 100 different lenses mm. uh, and wild cameras and this, that, and the other. And again, you know, I was operating and lighting the show for him, and you know, and so there's very few people involved, really, in even the film the size of Full Metal Jacket. We never had a huge crew, you know. There was myself, obviously, a full crew, an assistant cameraman, grips, two electricians, or something like that, and that's how we carried on the way we did. The sets were built pre-lit already, so we went straight in and just pulled a switch on our memories, did them to the exposure we predetermined at the levels we wanted to shoot at, and bang, off we went, and shot, you know, that's it. So it was really, really prepared, and technically in that sense. That gave him all the time in the world to work with actors. 
When it came to choosing his actors, Kubrick solicited videotapes from thousands of hopefuls, hungry young actors who were eager to work with the legendary filmmaker. We reached out to two of the film stars, Matthew Modine and Vincent D'Onofrio, to share with us their full Metal Jacket experience, beginning with that videotaped audition process. Actor, Matthew Modine. I was in Los Angeles at the, this restaurant uh, with my friend David Alan Greer, uh, when opposite me was a was another young actor named Val Kilmer, and Val was 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 giving me these dirty looks and uh, kind of mumbling to himself. And I asked David, I said, unless this guy has Tourette's, um, he's he's giving me the hairy eyeball. And and David looked over his his shoulder and he says, Oh, uh, that's Val Kilmer. He's a cool guy, and he got up and he went over and started talking to him. David Allen had worked with him, uh, with some, teaching him some songs for a movie that that Val Kilmer had done called Top Secret. Mm -hmm. And um, so he called me over to uh, introduce me to Val Kilmer, and I said, "Hey, how you doing? My name's Matthew." And he goes, "Yeah, I know who you are." He goes, "I'm sick of you, man." And at that particular moment in my career, it, it was I was on a fantastic run of movies. I'd done Harold Becker's Vision Quest. I did uh, Mrs. Soulful, where I played Mel Gibson's brother with Diane Keaton. And then I had just finished Birdie, and, and mm. Val Kilmer then said, and, and now you're doing uh, Full Metal Jacket. And I knew that Kubrick was casting the film, but, but Kubrick was requiring that everyone send in a videotape audition, which at that time it was very difficult because you had to have access to a big VHS camera and or or the money to be able to go into some kind of studio and, and put yourself on tape and I just couldn't be bothered to, to do it and, and hoped that you know, if Kubrick was interested, maybe he'd see one of these films that I had just completed. Um so long story short, uh I, I I ran out of the restaurant after I finished my pancakes and called up my manager and said that this guy had just told me that he heard I was doing Stanley Kubrick's new movie. Um, and he said he didn't know anything about it. And I said, I don't either. So why don't we call Warner Brothers and get him to send Vision Quest to him? And then I'll call Alan Parker in London and get Alan Parker to send uh, a piece of film because Alan was editing Birdie at the time over mm -hmm. to Kubrick. And um, I went back to New York, and I guess it was probably a month later, I heard the mail slot open on the, my front door, and a script got slid through it, and it was from Stanley Kubrick asking me to read the script and consider being in his film. Actor Vincent D'Onofrio. Modine and I uh, were friends, and we had met at auditions and stuff like that, and uh, I was working as a doorman at the Hard Rock Cafe. I was doing theater at the time and working as a doorman for pay the rent. And um, he passed by with his wife, Carrie, one day. And I said, what are you up to? And he said, well, I'm going off to do this thing with Kubrick. He said, you should send tape out there um, because there's this other part that hadn't been cast. And um, I sent the tape and then I did a, Basically, I did a monologue from a play that I was doing. You know, you had to rent a huge video recorder camera and a, a big tape deck that you carried over your shoulder. And, you know, it was like a huge thing. 
And then you had to find a you had to find like you know an NYU student that could edit it for you, yeah. So that you could send a VHS, you know. But but I did it, and then I got a call back, and that started the uh, Chris Stanley and I talking about the part, and yeah, it ended up to be my first uh, film. Okay, one other thing. There's three beats on when you do it. It should be three shakes. <coughs> this is my gun. <laughs> no, in time to the thing. This is my rifle. This is my gun. This is for fighting. This is for fun. So give it three, because a lot of people are just still touch and go with what they're doing. <laughs> Kubrick was long considered one of our most enigmatic filmmakers. And out of this grew a series of rumors about his working methods, particularly concerning his penchant for endless takes. Kubrick addressed this aspect of his reputation to Rolling Stone reporter Tim Cahill. Actors have, uh, are sometimes uh, undisciplined enough not to go home and go to sleep at night and learn their lines. And they go out and they come the next day and they haven't learned their lines. They cannot act without knowing dialogue. If you have to think about anything when you're acting, even if you can say the words, if you have to think about the words, you cannot work on the emotion. And if you, and if you, and even, of course, if you, even thinking about the words make mistakes, I mean, you're just miles away from what you're doing. So, it's happened on every film, you know, where somebody will do this pretty consistently. And once they start, uh, you really, there's not much you can do about them. You can fire them on day one, maybe replace them. So when you get into day 12, you know, you can threaten them, you can cajole them, you can try to appeal to their sense of uh, what reputation they're creating among the crew. And, but it doesn't. Some people are simply not able to get themselves sufficiently together to, you know, over a period of time, discipline themselves and go home and work. You know? So they come in and they don't do the lines. So now we get into a thing where, do you start shooting? Uh, and, uh, or, you know, at what point do you start? So you usually start too early. They blow a lot of takes where they're not doing it properly. Uh, so you wind up, say, with this particular actor, you know, maybe doing 30 takes of something, and every one of them is in some way fucked up because he really hasn't got a grip on it. Then the guy goes back to America, and if he's nice, he says, oh boy, Stanley's such a perfectionist. He does 100 takes on every scene. I had to do this thing, you know, 100 times. So the 30 becomes 100. And, of course, they never say why you did so many takes. Uh, uh, I don't do a lot of takes when it's good. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, you really, there's no way to fake your way through it if you don't know the words. If you have to think, you cannot think about the words. Uh, and you can see it in there, you can just see a lack of concentration in their eyes, and there's no way they can do it. And, you know, you're stuck, you're standing there, there's a hundred people waiting. So you either, you either try to shoot it and hope you get something out of it in pieces, or you, or you send them back to their dressing room, you do nothing, and they're trying to learn the line. So whatever happens, it's, it's not good. So I, I now have this, this reputation of doing a hundred takes on everything, and it simply isn't true. Actor Matthew Modine. He, he said that I, I get accused of uh, doing so many takes, and I, I do a lot of takes because actors don't know their lines. And I was like, what do you mean? I know my lines. And it, it wasn't until I finished the film, I met a man named Marvin Minsky, who it turned out was somebody who was responsible for this expression, artificial intelligence. 
And Marvin Minsky was a friend of Stanley Kubrick's who had worked with him on 2001 A Space Odyssey. That was just one of those weird coincidences of life, of serendipity. And because I met Marvin Minsky and I said, oh, my God, you know, I, I loved your book it, it called uh, The Society of Mind. I said, it was such a such a great book. And uh, I, I said that it was it was after reading the book, I understood something that Stanley Kubrick was talking about about lines. He says he actors he, he gets accused of doing a lot of takes because actors don't know their do know their lines. And in your book, you talk about the process that a child goes through of learning to discover that the hand is part of the arm, which is a part of the body, which is a part of the baby. You know that all of these that a child reaches for something, you know, sticks his finger in his eye, and it, that that muscle memory of of learning how to use your hand, how to how to use your arm to reach for a glass of water, that the baby spills all over his face. You know that then learns to put to 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 bring the cup of water to the face and drink without spilling it all down the front. These are all things that we have to to learn. We have to teach ourselves how to use our hand and, and to be able to drink something to get to the point where, as, as a more skilled person, you can pick up a cup of tea on a saucer and walk across the room and, and, and stub your toe on the furniture and tamp your hand in a way so that you don't spill the tea. And I was telling, I said, that's what Stanley Kubrick was talking about, knowing your lines. is like to go through the process that a baby goes through of knocking the cup over, spilling the cup, to being to get to the point where you can walk across the room with a cup of tea and a saucer and not spill it. And that's when Marvin Minsky told me, he said, you know, Stanley Kubrick and I were great friends. And I said, oh, of course you were. And th But that's what Stanley Kubrick was talking about, knowing your lines. You have to have them in your body so that you're not acting, you're, but you're being. You, you, you're not thinking about what it is you're going to say. You're saying it. You know, to yeah. get away from the whole artifice of acting, to get to a place that's that's something different. You know, it's it's something much deeper, something that's in inside of you and part of your your subconscious. I was present one or two days in a row where there was seventy or something more takes with a particular actor, but that was very rare. Actor Vincent D'Onofrio. This big scene in the middle of the movie. Um, where my character kills the sergeant and then kills himself was done in three takes. And that's mm. not including the special effect. And the special effect was done fairly quickly. It worked really well. A guy blew um, with his mouth, blew a soaked, um, soaked tissue um, past my head to hit the wall. And we did that a few times. There was no explosive in the rifle or anything like that. It was just all acting. I held it to my mouth. And I pulled the trigger. There was no explosive at all. And I just threw my head back as this guy um, fired this, um, blew this um, wet, this red uh, soaked tissue behind my head. But that the acting part of it was done in three takes. I only did my side in three takes. I don't remember how many takes Matthew did, but I remember it not being a lot at all. Maybe the same amount of me or maybe more. I don't know. But I know it wasn't a lot. Mm -hmm. I remember, I remember that scene very particular. I also remember hearing a lot of stories like you said that you've heard about Stanley doing many takes, so I know he had that reputation, but you know, I, would, I, I don't know if I was lucky or, or, or 
for what was going on there, but we never did that. I think the most takes I ever did was for was eleven takes, and that was because it was during the blanket party. There was there's a shot where everybody's getting out of their beds in a sort of sequence while the the dolly rolls on a track. And so that was a very he wanted it to have a, a, a certain rhythm to it as the camera comes up onto the bunk and you, you see uh, Joker and uh, Cowboy, if I'm correct, um, talking, uh, starting to talk to uh, to Leonard before he gets um, pummeled by the by the uh, blanket. Right. Right. So that was a very particular shot, and I only had to do it. Uh, you know, I had to do it like 11 times. I remember it being really exhausted because it was a very emotional scene for my character, but, you know, I was at such a scene paid to get. There was a day, and I wrote about this in my book, uh, Full Metal Jacket Diary. Mm-hmm. It was part of my diary that I was, I took on the responsibility of, th- that I had no business taking on, which was the, was the scheduling of the film, and, and that we, before the end of the first week, we were already a week behind, and by the end of the first month, we were still a month behind. And I felt that being the, the lead actor in his film, that, that I took the responsibility of that, that, that we're not moving forward because of something that I was doing, which was ridiculous because it had nothing to do with me. And and I, I felt like I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't know how to play this character that Stanley Kubrick was giving me an opportunity to play, and I, I knew it was a really important film. I knew this was a really difficult character, maybe the dip, most difficult character I'd ever played. And I was wandering around in a field, and I saw Stanley driving across it in his Jeep, and I tried to hide in the in the grass so he wouldn't see me. And of course, he did, and he drove across the field. And, and, and drove up and said, hey, you know, jump in. I'll give you a ride to the set. And I said, no, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll walk. And he, he could see that I was disturbed and upset. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, well, Stanley, uh, I, I don't know how to play this role. I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know what you want from me. I don't. I don't. I don't know what I'm doing. And he shut the jeep off and he pulled on his beard and he uh, scratched his scratched his forehead and he said listen i i don't want you to play anything i just want you to be yourself and i said yeah sure stanley okay yeah <laughs> i'll just be my just be myself and he uh, he said jump in the jeep i'll give you a ride to set i said no no it's okay I, i'm gonna i'm gonna walk and he drove off and i wrote in my diary that i i know the important part of that sentence was to be and that, that not to play, but to be, and it's it's something that if you read the whole diary, is is a, is a is a continuing theme throughout the 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 diary of a young man. I was you know my early twenties, working with this arguable genius, and learning to to be. The concept of simply being might have posed a significant challenge for most actors. But Arlie Ermey was no ordinary actor. He was himself a former Marine and drill instructor. So he was a natural fit for the juicy role of drill instructor Gunnery Sergeant Hartman in the first half of the film. But he wasn't Kubrick's first choice. Lee Ermey was hired to be the technical advisor on the film. And 
uh, it was when he was auditioning the extras on the film, and he he had Tim Colcheri, who becomes the helicopter. Uh, he's shooting the helicopter, the waste gunner, and the helicopter, you know, saying, get some, get some. And mm-hmm. I say, how do you shoot women and children? And he says, easy, you just don't lead him as much. That was the drill instructor. That's Tim Colcheri. He's a really nice man, a really wonderful actor. And Stanley wanted him to practice with the extras that were working on the uh, that, that were auditioning for the film. And he'd yell at him for a while, practice some lines that he was going to say as the drill instructor, and get tired, and his throat would hurt. And so he'd say, "I don't want to do it anymore." But still, we had you know 25 extras that that still needed to be auditioned and put on tape for Stanley to to look at to decide who was going to be in the film. So Lee Ermey would then step in front of the camera and start to audition these kids. And Lee Ermey is Lee Ermey. He's not any different than what he is in the film, in life. And Stanley would look at the the videotape and see Tim Colcheri, who was acting, playing the role, doing a good job. But then Lee Ermey would get in front of the camera, and he was. He wasn't playing. He was. And... It, it, that's why I say this is a constant theme in the diary, is that, that Stanley wasn't looking for something that's artificial. He's looking for something that is. That And, and, and Lee Ermey wasn't acting. He he was. He was he was being the drill instructor. Kubrick's personal assistant, Leon Vitale. Uh, now, Full Metal Jacket, I read a quote from Arlie Ermey who said that you kind of acted as his drill instructor during the process of of making that film. Yes, <laughs> and, I, and, and what you can say is this: that you know, for a man who'd spent a good part of his life, you know, you know, shouting and screaming at others, um, he was extremely generous and good-natured enough to allow me to do that <laughs> <laughs> with him. <laughs> you know. He was great. He was he was so great because first of all there was a desire. He he won he, he came to England. He he hadn't got that part. You know, he was there as a technical advisor. Even though the part had been cast, he was still there was this thing about him. He was so determined that he was going to impress in such a way that, you know, Stanley would understand that he should play that role. And <laughs> and um and it came about quite by because Lee was, you know, so open, and we we were working closely together from the beginning because we had to look for all the background platoons, you know, in Paris Island and in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And the way it was set up was that, you know, we went, we reached out to all the sort of what we call territorial army there, the so-called weekend soldiers, but you know, right. like the National Guard, I think. Um, you know, they're part-time, uh, but can be sent into action. So they're trained to a very high standard, in actual fact. And so for every kind of, anywhere around in the area where there were these territorial army divisions, we put out a, a call to say, you know, we're doing this film about, uh, you know, Vietnam, we're looking for extras, you know, to be, you know, play Marines and, you know, and we had a huge response, and it was all worked out so that they would come in, sit in front of a video camera, say their name and what their experience was, and blah, blah, blah. And then they do something like, we want you to move from this block to that block as you would as if you were attacking a target, but you had to keep undercover somehow. And it it was also very unsatisfactory. 
you know, it just seemed ridiculous because people freeze in front of a camera like that mm-hmm. very often, you know. And so I said to Lee, I said, why don't you, why don't we line them up the way all of them up, you know, get a, a mass call, uh, you know, for 30 or 40 or or however many we can get on any particular day. And you, because he brought all his gear over, you know, his 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 hat, his everything, his uniform, everything, you know. Um, I said, and you dress up, and then you deal with them on a one-to-one basis as you would if they had just come into the boot camp, and that's what he did. And so suddenly, I ha- we had, I had hours and hours and hours and hours of this outrageous dialogue, <laughs> screaming in the faces of all these guys, you know. And I showed these to Stanley, and and you know he realized this was the real deal. This was not mm-hmm. someone acting. This was someone just doing it. In a way, of course, it, it is probably what prepared him for being an actor, because you are being an actor. Well, yeah, that's you're reading dialogue, really. You've read, you're saying stuff you've said many times before, like you're saying it for the first time. And that, of course, is actually, <clears throat> I've always found that's one of the best. If you have, you know, 20 minutes to try to figure out if somebody can act, the best way to do it is to talk to them for, say, five or six minutes. And then tell them to go out of the room and come in again and go over the same thing and tell them that they must answer the questions as if, you know, without betraying in any way that you've just gone over the same ground. So being able to uh, say what you've said before as if you've never said it again is really quite a good acting exercise. Uh, So obviously, I'm not sure that every drill instructor could do it, but I mean, I think Lee has real acting talent. but it, it, it undoubtedly is what prepared him, because uh, uh, I think he's I think he's great in the film. As far as the dialogue, I would say maybe fifty percent of Lee's dialogue, not the not the thought out stuff, but the insult stuff, came from Lee. So we wound up with about I would say perhaps one hundred and fifty pages of dialogue uh, that came out of these improvisations. Some of which were so off the wall that we couldn't even use it in the movie, but. A lot of the off-the-wall stuff, you know, like uh, Lawrence, that name sounds like royalty. Are you royalty? You know, it just came out of these, uh, you know, I don't like the name Lawrence. Lawrence is, an, you know, for sailors, faggots and sailors. Uh, you know, you're so ugly, you could be a modern art masterpiece, stuff like that. This just came out of these improvisations. So we worked it into the main part of the scene. I mean, some of the things like, I like you, you can come over to my house and fuck my sister. That's on the book. And a lot of it's in the book, but he also created a tremendous amount of stuff. Lee was very prepared. Lee worked like a son of it because of his, you know, being a Marine. I mean, Lee was fucking, you know, he came and he would spend every second working with a dialogue coach when he wasn't on the stage, you know, going over the lines of the line. Lee always knew his lines. And I mean, you know, I suppose Lee averaged, you know, I don't know, eight, nine takes, ten takes or something, sometimes three takes. Because he was prepared. First of all, uh, you can't give enough credit to Arlie Ermey's performance as the uh, drill sergeant because he came out and he he gave this thing. You know, nobody had ever. You know, people had seen portrayals of drill sergeants, but nobody had ever heard a drill sergeant. You know, Kubrick was really smart. He let him do his own shtick. He he gave us the real thing. Film critic Glenn Kinney. And that was incredibly galvanizing and made you sort of. Um, really just made you made you made your jaw drop honestly and uh 
it's always useful when uh, a film actor can uh, can can give the audience some catchphrases, and God knows uh, this guy gave us some of the most obscene and disgusting catchphrases known to mankind. So I think that dynamic really helped, and the the the, the whole creepiness of the of the you know it's a, it becomes it's it's a it's a it's a basic training horror movie, you know it's like it's like the 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 Sands of Iwo Jima meets Psycho. The horrors on screen were superbly supported by the film's percussion-heavy score, which was composed by Kubrick's daughter Vivian, who accepted the credit under the pseudonym Abigail Mead. But there were also a slew of popular songs that showered the film, some of which were distinctly atypical. Oh, well, I mean, it depended on the scene. I mean, first of all, um, it just seemed, you know, certain music, we, we, we had, uh, oh, I don't know, we must have, I guess we've got uh, probably uh, everything that I could find that from about 1962, which was too early, right up to the period, we got the uh, billboard, uh, you know, list of uh, top 100s for each year and so forth, and we just went through all the stuff that, that uh, seemed like interesting choices, got the stuff in, tried it against the scene and uh you know certain things just work with the scene and some don't uh it's you know sometimes it has to do with just you know is the dynamic range of the recording too great to ever work in with the dialogue i mean is it because if you, if you have to come under the speech at some point and if, if if there's a tremendous dynamic range you just wind up hearing the, the loudest things and you don't hear the bass or anything else so some of the choices really just had to do with that, but um, of that, we picked. I picked the things that somehow seemed, uh, you know, interesting and worked for the scene. Film and philosophy professor Daniel Shaw. Uh, in Apocalypse Now, it very much uh, created the kind of immersion effect. In in the milieu of the late '60s and early '70s. And it made it all rather intoxicating, you know, the the uh, ride of the Valkyries helicopter attack, or the um, the Rolling Stones when the when the guys um, skiing behind the the PT boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the effect of the of the music in Full Metal Jacket is uh, is is like uh, Bertolt Brecht's Fremdung's effect. It, it's this kind of distancing, this kind of alienation, this kind of of cognitive dissonance uh, that doesn't allow you to just get into it. And that's, I think, part of his effect. I think Bertolt Brecht had that as as his intent initially with that idea, a kind of uh, of, of distance us from from becoming immersed in what is so intoxicating about the experience of war. And uh, I don't think there's really a point at which it is intoxicating. Film critic Glenn Kinney. Uh, You know, his use of music is is pretty hot in this picture. I mean, he's always been... He he tended to use uh, classical music quite a bit uh, in his Mm -hmm. pictures, and and that was always... uh, you know his use of contemporary classical music and stuff like The Shining and uh, 
2001 a space odyssey is you know been been commented on and uh rightly so it's 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 pretty great uh using you know people sometimes wonder well what his attitude towards pop music was like is he using it is he making fun of it is he like it i mean i don't really care uh he used it well and he used it uh in uh, really effective ways and for both these boots are made for walking and uh Surf and Bird also are used uh, pretty well in this picture. I went everybody's heard about the bird. The bird, bird, bird. The bird's a winner when the bird, bird, bird. The bird is a winner when the bird, bird, bird. When the bird is a winner when the bird, bird, bird. The bird's a winner when the bird, bird, bird. When the bird is a winner when the bird, bird. The bird's a winner when the bird, bird, bird. The bird's a winner when the bird, bird, bird. When the bird is a winner when the bird, bird. The bird's a winner when the don't you know. chapel and we're gonna get married going to the chapel and we're gonna get By the time Full Metal Jacket was released in U.S. theaters on July 10th, 1987, Hollywood had already produced a string of Vietnam War films. As a result, the initial critical assessments were restrained in their optimism for the film. They believed that Kubrick had arrived too late to the party and that audiences and other filmmakers of note had finally caught up with him. But the passing decades have wrought a clarity of perspective on Full Metal Jacket, as they have done with all of Kubrick's films. Vietnam, as it probably was, which most people say we were there, would identify with more than any of the others. It probably sounds trying to say something that probably the apocalypse never did. You have to remember that hundreds and hundreds of Marines have come up to me uh, mm -hmm. in the many years since I've made that film. And told me that I helped them get through that period of their life, that the training period, and or the Marine Corps itself. And, and Full Metal Jacket's legacy today, um, you know, I think it's, it's weird because the street fighting that we were doing in the city of Wei um, looks like the street fighting in the city of K Kabul, or, F you know, any take your take your pick of which city in Afghanistan or Iraq. Stanley found a deeper truth with Full Metal Jacket uh, that is fantastic, and I, I don't know how he accomplished that, but he did. Full Metal Jacket stands as another towering achievement in Kubrick's gallery of contrasts and conflicts. 
between warring countries, between primates and the homo sapiens of the future, between government entities and the free will of the common man, between man's inner demons and the families they place in peril, between the classes, between our capacities for both war and peace, or even between husband and wife. Thank you.